This week's episode of the Picture Line Podcast is brought to you by the Westcott Rapid Box Switch. Isn't it time that you made the switch? Learn more in-store or online at pictureline.com slash switch. My guest this week on the Picture Line Podcast has been a commercial photographer for more than 35 years. He is one of Canon's explorers of light. He is one of the top pros for Westcott. Uh, and his name is Joel Grimes. Joel, how are you doing? Well, very good. Thank you. Joel, you also uh, like to be described as an educator. It's kind of what you've moved into beyond just photography as an educator. And that's actually why you're in Salt Lake, right? Yeah. Because you are, where are you based? Well, I'm in the west side of Phoenix. Okay. So what brings you to Salt Lake? Well, tonight we're going to have a lecture here okay. at Picture Line and then a workshop tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's start with the, the lecture tonight. Uh, what do you plan on covering there? Well, so wh- I try to break it down in a couple. If I have a crowd in front of me or a group or even one individual, I, I always want them to move on from where they're at to something greater. Okay. I want to be the catalyst to push somebody. Sometimes that might be painful for someone because we get stuck in a rut and we don't want to be pushed. It's like if you're a coach or you are uh, you know, say you, you're working out at the gym and you got someone pushing you to do more reps. Well, you know that there's a benefit to that, but you don't want to be told to push more weight or more reps. Mm-hmm. And so as a, you know, someone who has been doing this a long time and I can see, I think there's a lot of misconceptions in this industry on what is a su- successful photographer, how to get there. And, and so I talk about that. I talk about what is it that's keeping you from where, what, to, to moving forward. Mm-hmm. You're stuck somewhere. Why aren't you moving forward? Or, or you may not have the right perspective on how the industry works. So once I, I try to clarify a lot of things, misconceptions. I had many of them. Mm-hmm. And there's st- still there's things that I'm learning today at 61 that I'm thinking, oh, that's not how it works. And we're in a world of social media, and we have – you know, Facebook, we have you know Instagram, now YouTube, all these things that we're trying to navigate through. And then you know I think, okay, I got it figured out. And then someone comes along and says, no, 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 no. Yeah. And then you go, oh, really? Okay. And so, but I do that with photographers that, um, number one, I believe you can make a living at this. I was told I couldn't. My dad told me, Joel, you'll never make a dime in this, you know, being a photographer, right. or being an artist. He didn't do that because he didn't love me. He didn't do that because he wanted to, well, I wouldn't say he, he was actually, as a general sense, an encourager, but he wanted to protect me from going down this path of basically no, I wasn't going to eat, basically. Mm-hmm. He wanted to save me. Mm-hmm. He was a fireman, became fire chief of Tucson. My, my two brothers are firemen. You know, he wanted me to be a fireman and get a real job kind of thing. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to go out and explore and chase a dream that, you know, it seemed like it was a little bit too far out there. Mm-hmm. But I was willing to take that risk. And, and uh, I believe there, there is a way to uh, move in the direction of the goal that you want, dreams, setting even goals beyond what you could think, and achieving those. And, you know, a lifetime on one hand is very short. But actually, so I've been doing this realistically for about 45 years, because if you count my high school days. Okay. But really, I would say 40 years. 40 years, 41 years now that I've been plugging away at being a photographer. Mm-hmm. And 
I look back at my career and I think, wow, and I've covered a lot of ground. Been to well over 50 countries, every state in America. I've photographed, um, you know, billionaires to $100 million athletes to uh, celebrities to uh, doing ad campaigns. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's just been an amazing career. And I was just a basic, you know, average C student from Tucson, Arizona, but I had a dream. And mm-hmm. I think that um, if I can pass that on to someone on how to maybe ease that a little bit for them, the journey, then I'm all for it. I'm like, okay, let me help you out. I think that in the nine, well, so 80s, 90s, most photographers were very guarded and weren't, they wouldn't come along and say, oh, you could do it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you can make a lot of money in this industry. You could chase your dream. Uh, and if you said, how did you take that picture? They'd say, well, I'm going to tell you. We're in a different world. We're in a different time period. We're in the greatest age of, of a lot of things. Not only the image capture side, the, not only the print output side. Um, the ability for me to go and look at imagery on a level that when I was in college, I would go to the library and I would sit there and I would start, you know, in the photography section, third floor, you know, at the, uh, the university I was going to. Um, and I would spend a couple hours sitting there and then I'd go, I put a little mark where I left off and then I'd come back the next day or two and I'd, you know, I'd go through. But now we can go on the Internet and we can look and pour through images on a rate of speed that, you know, there's just – you can absorb yourself with a lot more imagery now than you could back when I was starting out. Mm-hmm. Good or bad? Sure, yeah. I think in some ways maybe I sat and absorbed Irving Penn or, you know, even Ansel Adams to start out as a landscape photographer. I absorbed that stuff maybe a little bit more. But, but the fact is we have a lot of great photography out there that we can look at. We can look – you know, get ideas, Pinterest – all these things we can go and get get uh, um, information, you know. We can Google anything now, and so. But here's the weird thing about where I think. So you, if you look back when I was in the early '80s, mid '80s, when I was in Denver chasing my dream, went with a buddy there, and there were a fair amount of photographers. And, and in fact, per capita and per the amount of jobs, there was it was you was you had to really fight for it. Mm-hmm. You look at now, there's a lot more photographers. Sure. I think there's a lot more outlets to go and make a living in photography today. But there's always a few that end up at the top. And that's my question is how do you get to the top? How do you get to the point where you're the one that everyone's talking about? You're the one that's, uh, you know, pulling in the money that everyone wants to pull in. How is that possible? Is it, does it take a, you have to be a creative genius? You have to be brilliant? Well, if that was the case, I wouldn't be here. And I say that in, in, a, in a way because I was not very – the academic structure in a classroom was not something that fit me very well. Mm. I was into sports. I loved to be out there. So I kind of found my identity in sports. When – and I, you know, like I said, I was barely a C student. But I learned something later in life that I can I – can, if you put whatever is learning computers – programming, whatever it is. If I spend enough time at it, I can learn it. So in, it generally what happened in, in the academic structure, the way we had it set up going through school, is that the, the pace was a little too fast for me. I had to, I had to 
I have to absorb myself with something. But the, what, what happens to me, though, is I will sit and ponder a thought for a long time or a concept for a long time, and then I'll, I'll look at it from all different angles. Mm. And then I'll, want, I'll be ready to move on. But in, in a classroom structure, I was too quick. And I was always getting, like, behind, and then I got frustrated. And I decided, well, okay, I'm going to go throw the football. And, and then later in life, I learned that I can uh, figure things out if I spend enough time at it, which talks about lighting. So um, for the first 25 years of doing commercial ad campaign stuff, I was shooting one light cross light. And that, I learned that not from a photographer, but from studying art history. I, when I went through the art history and I came to the Re- Renaissance Baroque time period in the painters, you know, and I, I remember seeing where they went and did cross light, that, that cr- beautiful uh, side lighting, cross lighting, whatever right, you want yeah. to call it, Rembrandt lighting. Mm-hmm. That just like blew me away, that look. Okay? And then when it, the first softbox I got, what am I going to do? Cross light. Sure. And, and then I did it different than anyone else. I, most, most my, my studio mate, people, I didn't go through a lighting class. I was fine arts. But they said put it 45-degree angle uh, to your subject. I ended up uh, moving it 90-degree side, complete side. Uh, light and that became my look and became my signature and I used it for 25 years they had a whole book on the Navajo 400 days living out of Volkswagen van so and it, and it wasn't until well I'm 61 so when I turned 50 uh, that was around the 2006 7 and 8 time period where the economy was going terrible ad agencies were closing their doors and I remember sitting down with my wife and I said wow I've never experienced this before I never experienced where I was putting bids on. They'd give me the bid, and then all of a sudden they'd cancel the job. Mm-hmm. Weird things were going on. Mm-hmm. And I was really frustrated, and um, I said, I, get, I need to get to L.A. And we were in Tucson at the time. We moved back from Denver to Tucson. But anyways, the point was is I said, I'm not done. At 50 years old, I'm not done. I'm going to go reinvent myself. And the first thing I said I need to do is learn lighting. And I had already been shooting huge ad campaigns with Crosslight, but I didn't venture outside of that. Mm-hmm. And so I grabbed, um, well, for example, what's the difference between an octo bank and, a, and a, like, say, a rectangular bank? What is, it, what is the really difference of that? You know, so, so you see your maybe a YouTube uh, video of your favorite photographer shooting something with an octo. Mm-hmm. And you go, oh, five-foot octo. i got to have it. So you go out and you buy a five-foot octo. Then you come back, and it's like, your picture sucks. Right. And you're thinking, Why, what, what, what's wrong here? And a lot of the lighting uh, instructors, when I say, when I looked to get information on lighting, they were giving me the wrong information. And when I say that, it's kind of an interesting way, wrong for me, mm-hmm. okay, the way I learn. They were, most lighting instructors pr- approach lighting from a technical, schematics, ratios, showing you know flash meter all this stuff like sure. okay calculations or whatever get a mathematical you know uh, calculator out to go and figure something out and i said that's not me i'm going to learn a different way and i learned how to do lighting from my intuition feelings and emotions mm. and i can light anything you throw it in front of me you say here's a picture joel can we light this i can figure it out because I'm not looking at it from a technical, I'm looking at it from an emotional. Right. And there's a huge difference between the two approaches. Now, we do need smart people that know all this technical stuff and they have the names for everything. Broad light, short light, you know, clamshell lighting, all these terms. Well, so I started, what I did was I, I, I cracked the code. 
on lighting. And how I cracked the code was basically I got rid of a whole bunch of misconceptions. For example, a round modifier versus a square or rectangular. What's the difference, okay? So you know that when you have a reflection, like a bottle of wine or something, you're going to pick up your modifier, right? So mm-hmm. you don't use a umbrella for a product shoot. Sure. Because it's going to show up somewhere that's reflective. So you use a rectangular or a square or something that's straight-edged. I knew that. But outside of that, that's it. That's all I knew. So, for example, I'll give you a really, a really interesting uh, concept that a lot of photographers don't understand. So you have, you have a, let's say, a softbox. And you have uh, uh, inner baffle. And then you have, so you have, you have the, you mount it in there. Then you have this first baffle of diffusion. And you have a second diffusion, which is your outer surface. So you say, well, okay, so there's two pieces of diffusion that light's going through. So that's why it's so soft, a soft box. Well, there's some truth to that, but let's say, let's say I go and put a third piece of baffle in there. Is that going to make it softer? No. Okay, so what's making it soft, and how, what's the cause of making it soft? So I had to ask that question. So, so let's take, we take the baffle out, and we, just, we set up a model. We take our, our exposure, and we take the baffle out and we make exposure, and then we put the baffle in and make an exposure. You look at the two, and you say, wait a minute, the one with the baffle is softer. So it has to be the baffle shooting through the diffusion, right? Well, no. So once you understand that the baffle is to disperse the light evenly across the front of the outside panel. So um, when you take the baffle out, what's happening is you're blasting light into the center of your softbox. So you have, let's say, a 34 by uh, 48 softbox. And you have your, hood, your, your flash in there. It's a round flash tube and it's sitting there. And if you take and shoot in your camera into that front paneling with the baffle out, you get a really hot spot and then it darkens toward the edges, mm-hmm. right? So why is that making your subject harsher baffle or the the softbox is from the same distance because you're 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 shorting shortening the light you're making a smaller modifier Mm. so when you put the baffle in you're broadening the light so therefore it makes it softer so the bigger the source in relationship to your subject the softer the light so if you want to let's say you take any any modifier and you bring it in so you make exposure that five feet compensate it, bring it in, compensate for the exposure at three feet, it's going to be softer at three feet than five feet because you're broadening the source. It's getting bigger in relationship to the mm-hmm. subject. You back it up, it gets harsher, harsher, harsher. You can take a seven-foot octo and make it really harsh if you back it up far enough. Right. So I had to, once I cracked the code, the bigger the source in relationship to the subject, the softer light, and that it, it, all these things like the shape of the modifier has zero to do with the old, the the quality light on the on the final image, mm-hmm. unless it's a reflected surface. So, a round modifier over the top of the camera reflects in the eye, makes a round catch light. Right. So you say that's a, that's more flattering. It may not be, but I mean generally we say that. You can use a. So I did this. I took a beauty dish, you know, twenty-two whatever inches, and a softbox that was similar size, and I grabbed my kids and I would 
give him a, a soda pop or a candy bar to sit in front of me, and I would practice, and I would go, okay, take the, take the beauty dish, then take the modifier. Well, I found out that, that the quality of light was the same if, it's the, if the source is the same size, if it's the same broadness. And I didn't understand umbrellas for years. I used umbrellas for, like, big group shots. That was it. But I was misusing my umbrellas for years, and I, it really baffled me. And it, until I cracked the code, all of a sudden the light bulb went off, and I said, oh, I'm not using the umbrella correctly. I always had a standard hood on my light, run it through the little hole, right? Mm-hmm. And then you, you only have a rod so long, right? So you, you kind of back it up, and then you set it up and shoot it. Bounce into it and then bounce back to your subject. Or shoot through it even. But it was always harsh. Mm-hmm. Couldn't figure out why. It's a big old, you know, at that time, I had 60-inch umbrellas. They weren't, weren't, they weren't very, very, very soft. Well, because I'm blasting light in the center of umbrella, so I'm basically I'm getting a 20-inch a modifier in a 60-inch umbrella. So it becomes a harsher light. Mm-hmm. Once I learned to take and get a wide-angle wide reflector or take the reflector off completely and just blast as much light into that reflector as possible or that umbrella as possible, you get a softer source. Well, anyways, so going back to at 50 years old, I learned all this, not from a book, not from a tutorial, not from a workshop, but from sitting, going, scratching my head, going, I have got to figure this out. To move on, I got to figure it out. Well, it wasn't long after that that I was producing some crazy images and people going, how are you doing these? And I was basically, I wouldn't say inventing light, but I was taking certain lights like the edgy three light. I took a two edge light, one light overhead, doing crazy things. Um, and I could take any photograph. Once I, once I cracked the code, I could take any photograph, look at it and go, I can duplicate that. And then in my commercial side of things, my work exploded on another level too because now I could do anything. I was confident. I could shoot a $100 million athlete and not even blink an eye. I just go, oh, I got it figured out. They walk mm-hmm. in the door, boom, got it. And so um, the last 10 years have been a crazy ride. Um, and so I always say to people, it's not too late. No matter what age you are, it's never too late to go and say, I want to crack the code on something. And so going back to chasing your dream, and that is, how do you crack the code to make a living? And I think that when I started out, I always thought the most, I guess, the best photographers made the most money. I mean, if you're a really good photographer, you made the most money. Mm-hmm. Well, after 40 years in this industry, I realized that's not true. I have friends that can run circles around me, but they barely can pay their bills. Mm-hmm. What, so why aren't they making a good income? Well, then you see someone who's not a very good photographer, <laughs> and they're out there cranking it. Yeah. They're taking all the work from other photographers. So you go, there's something more than your, your skill. So I always say persistence won over more art directors than a great portfolio. So talk about the power of eight. Talk about getting your name in the brain of the person that you want to hire you. So you can take anything, any magazine, National Geographic or whatever it is. You say, I want to work for that magazine. I want to work for that ad agency or that client or whatever it is. I've taught my boys this. And you go and do your due diligence, which is to get your name into their brain, um, you'll work for them. It's the craziest thing on the planet. Because there's one thing that I learned, and this goes back to my, I start tonight with my whole uh, intro to my presentation, is the one thing that I have to overcome more than anything is my humanity, being human, which is I don't like to be told I suck or criticized. I get really nervous when I go to present myself to someone to win them over. 
So I'm going to think I'm going to make a goof of myself or something. So I get nervous when I make a cold call or make do a portfolio showing, whatever. My humanity is the single thing I have to overcome. And so um, I, I touch on that a lot. So a lot of times, let's say, let's say you came to me and said, Joel, I need the keys to success. I want to chase my dream. And I wouldn't talk to you about f-stops and shutter speeds mm -hmm. i'd say okay here's what you need to do you need to overcome your your humanity and and so one of the things that i learned is to put my to reverse the roles of the person i'm pitching so i'm nervous pitching an art director or a photo editor or whatever i'm nervous as i'll get out i'm trying to make that cold call i'm like oh well all right so the person i'm pitching they're Let's put, let me put myself in their shoes, which I do, and I get people calling me, right? So I'm busy. So I always say every art director has a boss. They have deadlines. They have budgets. They have crises. Everyone ends up in a crisis. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're driving, let's say you need tires on your car, and you go, okay, my tires are getting bald. The snow season coming up, okay? All right, so finally you go, okay, I got a little extra money. My ch paycheck came in. You go down to, you know, discount towers, tires or whatever, and you get your new tires, right? You get a good deal on your tires. But if you're driving from here to L.A., and in the middle of nowhere, you have a blowout, and your spare somehow isn't working, and you have to buy a tire in someone's little small town, you'll pay double than what you'd pay in town because mm -hmm. you have a crisis. So everyone has a crisis, and when a crisis, you end up, having to make choices you wouldn't normally make. So when it comes to hiring a photographer, every art director, photo editor, or someone, marketing director, or somebody in the position to hire photographers, they're going to end up in a crisis. And when they do, they have to bring somebody in that they normally wouldn't do, but they have to because they don't have any other choice. Mm -hmm. So I always get in the door by a crisis. I don't get in the door because I'm the best photographer. It's just that I position myself to get in the door. And so that's how I've built my career. And I end up, hopefully, becoming one of their staple photographers sure. and one of their best, you know, and they go to. I've had clients, you know, 10, 15 years. Yeah. But it's interesting that I thought I'd get in the door because I was a really good photographer. That's not the way it works. Yeah. So you went from shooting commercially and having this success and learning all these things on your own. And you've already talked about, one, the, the technical things that you've learned even in the last 10 years after already having a 30-year career. Uh, and you've also talked about the, the philosophical side, the things, you know, the, the getting inside the head of the person that you're pitching and all that stuff. So what uh, led you from having all of that success to deciding to, um, deciding that people needed to hear this stuff? Becoming an educator, what, what led to that transition? Because plenty of successful photographers are doing exactly what you said, which is keep those kind of those secrets to themselves and having their own personal style and, and sort of holding on to that and letting that be, you know, their, their ticket, if you will. Um, so what led you to decide that, you know, this is something that needed to be shared with people? Well, I always had an open door to my studio. I always had people that I would try to, you know, mentor. I always share. I never had, I never had any secrets. Mm -hmm. And part of that comes from confidence that you know who you are, mm. right? So when, it's, when, I try, when I see someone trying to copy what I do, I, go, I always say, look, it's hard enough being Joel. Why are you trying to be Joel, right? 
be you, be yourself. Mm-hmm. Talk a lot, a lot about that. But um, so I know who I am. It doesn't mean I don't get jealous. I mean, on occasion, I'll see someone's work and I'm like, whoa, that's really good. You know, and then it kind of gets the lights of fire under my little behind. But, but, um, and I want to be driven by competition to some degree because I want to go out and better myself. But I think part of it is a, a combination of a couple things. One is I was learning something that wasn't being taught, I don't think, correctly. In the, in the arena, the photography arena, lighting. Let's just say lighting. And all of a sudden, all these people are going, wow, you explained that very well. And that made, that made a lot of sense mm-hmm. instead of the technical, right? Because a lot of artist photographers aren't the engineer-minded type people. Right. And so all of a sudden, I got this interest of people, you know, invites to go out and speak and stuff. And, and then I did a thing called, uh, it was um, uh, framed... Um, frame network it was Joel Grimes lit up and I did 15 different lighting techniques and that was early on and that just put me out there a flicker put me out there um, um, and then I try to think I had a blog my, my, my assistant told me get a blog and and so I started putting all this stuff up on there and it just the floodgates opened for me to be invited to speak mm-hmm. and I think that if I was in my 30s, I don't think I would have been interested in it. But I'd already kind of done a lot. And I was like, you know what? As you get older, it's like you, you, you feel like there's a sense of giving back, you know, and mentoring. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so I think it was a combination of my personality, uh, the timing, you know, in learning lighting and all these things. And we were also in the, the heyday of education, online education, uh, you know, from Photoshop World, Creative Live, you know, lynda.com, all these venues were exploding. And if you look at even PictureLine, the model of what PictureLine is today is completely different than the model of what a camera store was 20, 30 years ago. Absolutely, yeah. They were, they were junk shops. Mm-hmm. They had stuff cluttered everywhere. And they just, you know, had that smell of like, you know, chemicals and you know, seamless paper and, you know, everything just kind of laying around. And someone say, hey, do you, uh, do you have a sandbag? It's like, well, buried under 15 pieces of boxes right. and stuff, right? Um, the other thing that stores like Picture Line have done is to add on an education part of mm-hmm. the whole thing. So we've gone through this explosion in education. And, um, you know, so that's a good thing. Um, it's also... There could be a downside to that is that people uh, don't go out and take their risk on their own. So mm. they're just going from workshop to workshop or sure. whatever, and, and they get excited for a week, and then they get back on the couch and watch TV all weekend. So my, my role is sort of, uh, I guess, a life coach or someone that says, if you have a dream, here's how I think you, you, know, you need to get out and work hard. And I talk a lot about the... 50 self-assignments a year to keep yourself fresh, um, experimenting. I'm always trying something new. So if something's introduced to the marketplace, I'll look at it and go, how do I apply that to a creative process? Then I go out and I build this body of work. And people go, that's, you're brilliant. I go, well, no, no, no. I just took and sat down and said, okay, what can I do with this? You know, and um, so, but, but we're also shifting now. The, the, there's just been that huge wave of digital 
education. We're doing crazy things that we never could do before. High-speed sinking. Um, you know, now education is pretty much free. And so instructors like me who have made a partial living on education side of things mm-hmm. are getting hit pretty hard. There's a lot of people doing workshops, a lot of people out there. Uh, there's some young, young blood that's they're very good on the YouTube side, analytics, figuring it all out. And, you know, someone like 61 like me, I can't figure that stuff out. It's just way beyond me. But it's like this new group of people coming along. And I think the danger is. So I had asked myself a, a question from the very single first entry of my blog back 10 years ago. I said, what has not changed in the last 100 years when it comes to photography? Because back then that was when the digital, you know, film versus digital. And I said, it still takes an artist to create. And when you have um, comparisons, Nikon versus Canon, right. you know, mirrorless versus full frame, or, you know, or a single lens reflex, you know, all these comparisons and people, I like pair comparisons. People that are smart, they figure out a lot of stuff. You know, this lens versus this lens. And then we get so caught up in all the gear and things, and we don't realize that it's, it takes an artist to create. So you can take a little Rebel with a kit lens, and you're going to rock the world. That, I mean, that's what it really comes down to. Mm. I like good gear. I like things that, you know, like super fast lenses that shallow depth of field and high-speed sinking and some crazy stuff I'm doing now. But but in the end, it all comes down to the creative process. So. So I think that when I go and look at this, and I've always looked at the education side as being weighted to the technical side, not mm-hmm. the creative side. Mm-hmm. And I look at a lot of these young photographers that are figuring it out on the YouTube side, and you know, and they're they're being monetized, so they don't have to you don't have to pay for their education; it's free, basically. And they're right. putting all this stuff out there. A lot of them are missing it. I think they're missing the creative side, and so. I think that so long as I have the creative voice, I'll have at least some position in this marketplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think, and I don't know if I'd say this, I think the heyday or the, unless you're on YouTube and being monetized, you're not going to make any money in the education side. Hmm. It's, it's uh, maybe I'm wrong. I, I hope I'm wrong. But, um, you know, personal workshops, I think where numbers, I'm, I'm shortening my workshops, getting less people, a little more intimate, things like that, um, making the experience a little bit more, you know, meaningful for yeah. a two-day workshop. So there, I'm going to have to look at different things on how to keep the workshops going. But I think even my workshops are going to be doing less and less of them. Hmm. So, Well, um, speaking of liking nice equipment but not necessarily needing it, um, is there – one piece of equipment that you cannot go without is maybe it's a Westcott light, maybe it's a Canon lens. Is there is there one piece of gear that you you absolutely swear by uh, on every shoot? Well, <laughs> I have a saying. It's a joke, actually. I, I have this slide that comes up. I'm talking about kind of the flash meter, you know, and people say, you know use a flash meter and I say well I haven't touched one in 30 years and I said this slide says a sandbag has a thousand more uses than a flash meter and uh, Tim Myers who 
uh, is an instructor. He was at Brooks for many years. And I went, I went to speak at Brooks, and he came up to me and said, Hi, I'm Tim Myers. I hate you. He was just <laughs> he was joking. We've right. become good friends. But um, he taught a whole class on the flash meter. And he's, very, <laughs> he's a smart guy, yeah. and he knows a lot more technical things than I do. Yeah. But the, 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 when it comes to gear, um, I think that um, most of us can do without a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I think that and lately I've been doing a lot with tilt shift lenses. Okay. And there's a couple reasons why. So I have a, well, I have two big can, three Canon printers, but one, the 60 inch output. And then I have the brand new uh, 4000 Pro 4000, 44 inch printer and the Pro 1000. But I love big prints. And I used to shoot large format back in the day. And so when I use a tilt shift lens, I'm doing lots of crazy portraits using tilt shift lenses, mainly the 90 now, Mm -hmm. 90 tilt shift, to where I get... Um, if I'm shooting the new EOS R, I get about a 70 meg- uh, mega- megapixel capture. If I use my 5DSR, I get about 120 megapixel capture. So I'm getting huge files that I can make big, big prints. Right. So, and, and that 90 tilt shift is absolutely incredible, razor sharp. And I, just my jaw hits the floor every time I make a huge print off of that thing. So, so I think it shifts around a little bit. I mean... Um, I like my night, my 7200 sat in my, my camera bag for years and I pull it out once or twice a year. Then my son would come and he'd say, dad, that's the, that's the best lens on the, on the market. And he would shoot all the time with his 7200. So I'm thinking, well, I better pull that out. So I started pulling out. I started shooting more shallow depth of field stuff. <coughs> I started using ND filters and then all of a sudden I started using high speed sync out in the field. It's, so I'm strobing with shallow depth of field and that opened a whole nother realm so high speed sync is another thing that now i can't live without hmm. so i have to have a strobe that's got high speed sync okay um because i'm doing some really fun stuff cool it just opens the door to another look that I didn't have for many years yeah so there's always something that you know i would say hey i need you know i always use a tripod i always put my my um, camera on a stable platform it gives mm-hmm. me sharper results plus obviously with tilt shift lens i got to use that but um I like to frame it up. I like to build the shot. I like to move things. I like to move a light three inches, just adjust something. So if I'm always holding the camera, I can't do that. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't know about one piece of equipment. I mean, there's just, here's the, what's crazy though. So you add your, let's say you have three really good zoom lenses. Okay. Okay. Then you get a couple primes in there. Then you get a couple tilt shift lenses in there. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, you can't pick your camera back up. Right. I mean, we're getting. I'm getting so much gear. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have rollers on my wheels. You know, I mean, to move. I used to put them around my shoulders. I don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's like, yeah, there's a lot more equipment that we have today. But if, again, if you had to only live with one lens and one camera, I think um, I could do it. I could build a body of work with it. Cool. Well, Joel, thank you so much for coming. Um, thank you for sitting, sitting down to talk with us. Yeah. Looking you. forward to uh, hearing more about this tonight at your lecture. And then uh, you do have your workshop tomorrow. Where can people see uh, your work? You've mentioned a couple of different places. What, yeah. Where's a good place so to point So this people? last, well, I started last year and then I finally released it in the beginning, the middle of the summer. It's the Joel Grimes Academy. So I have okay. over 120 tutorials and it covers everything from 
how to be an artist, how to overcome your humanity, how to do lighting, how to do all the camera craft stuff. Um, and then we have the, uh, the print side. So, so, and, and the business side, the lot on the business side, how to, how to put together a bid, mm-hmm. how to, um, do a promo campaign, all these things I've got on there. It, it took me about seven months to record all the tutorials. Um, that's joelgramsacademy.com. My website, joelgrams.com. That's my typical website. And then I have my blog is joelgramsworkshops.com. And so there's a lot of stuff there too. So I'm out there a lot. And all the social media stuff, I don't even know my Twitter handles. And my wife does all that for me. Sure. Well, cool. Thank you very much, Joel. We appreciate talking to you. And we will talk to you next time. Thank you. Thanks to Joel for taking some time to sit down with us. You can find all of Joel's work that he mentioned in this episode at the link in our show notes. Thanks to Westcott for sponsoring the episode. Remember, you can make the switch now to the RapidBox switch at pictureline.com switch. Thanks to Rode for furnishing our audio equipment. PictureLine is located at 305 West, 700 South in Salt Lake City and is your source for photography equipment, education, resources, and more. You can find a full list of our events, classes, and everything we have going on at pictureline.com. If you enjoy the PictureLine podcast, be sure to leave us a review wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Jacob Norwood, and we'll see you next week.